Today we're going to learn about God's greatest of concerns, the biggest issue he faces, the biggest problem he has to solve. And thinking about God having to solve this major crisis reminds me of a story about the different ways that people solve problems. There was a a high-powered Chicago attorney that came down to dove hunt here in Texas, and he went out on one of our rural farms and and shot a dove in the act, you know, he was, he had leased some place and paid for a guided hunt. And the dove that he shot fell across the fence into another landowner's field. And so he just crosses the barbed wire fence. He goes over to pick up the dove. Well, just beyond the dove, about the time he sees his dove, there is a rough, tough Texas farmer sitting on a tractor. And he asked him the question, what are you doing? He said, well, I shot this dove. It fell across on the other side of the barbed wire fence. And I came over here to pick it up. And And he said, well, um, you're not allowed to do that. This is private property, and because it sits over here, it's now my dove. And uh, the Chicago attorney that was used to getting his way, very influential in the government there, kind of bowed out his shoulders and said, sir, uh, I'm from Chicago, and I'm a lawyer, and this is, you know, this is how we do things in Chicago and back home. And he started going through who he knew and name dropping and all of those kinds of things, and And, you know, kind of threatening the farmer. And the farmer said, well, we're not in Chicago, sir. We're in Texas. And that's not how we do things here. He smartly said, well, how do you do things in Texas? He said, well, we have a three-kick rule. He said, well, what's the three-kick rule? He said, well, I kick you three times. You kick me three times. And the first one that gives up loses. The Chicago man's man said, well, I can play that game. That's the way you settle things out here in redneck Texas. I'll play So the farmer got off his tractor. Remember, he's got heavy pointy-toed cowboy boots. He said, I'll go first. So he rears his leg back. He kicks the man right in the side of the thigh. And the lawyer winces in pain and bends over. Before he can catch his breath, the farmer catches him in the ribs. And he goes down to his knees. And before he knows what hit him, the farmer whops him across the head. And he's seeing butterflies. And after a few minutes, he gets himself together. And he stands back up. And he realizes, okay... He looks at the farmer and he said, all right, now it's my turn. The farmer said, oh, no, you can have the dove. I don't don't want the dove. (laughs) There are more than one way to solve a problem, and there are different ways to look at it, depending on where you're from. And in this particular situation we're going to read about today, God's got a problem to solve that cannot be solved with a swift kick. It's a problem that a cowboy boot won't help with. It's the number one barrier between us and God, and that is our sin nature. This week, the story continues by showing how God desires to remove our sin nature. He wants to remove the barrier, the single obstacle that keeps us out of relationship with Him. And the story opens today with God's new nation that is in bondage and needing a miracle of deliverance. But before we get there, let me review in case you're joining us for the first time today. We've been on a several week journey. Today is about the fourth. There's a lot of people that believe the Bible is just a collection of old rules and a bunch of unconnected spiritual stories, but in reality it's actually one big continuous story of God trying to put his family back together again. It's this relentless pursuit of God to remove the sin nature from His creation so that He can be in relationship with them. It's not a collection of stories. It is the story. 
Let me just ask, by a show of hands, I want to know how many of you are reading along with us with this journey, either in your Bible or in the copy of your story. Uh, Thanks. I I really appreciate you doing that, many, many of you. And I know there were a lot of you because we keep selling out of this. This is the story. It's a chronologically arranged version of the NIV Bible divided into 31 chapters. And we go through a chapter a week, and we're on chapter 4 today. We're out. Uh, You can download this uh, on all of the digital readers. You can pick it up in Bible bookstores, and we're going to order more for you to be able to get in our lobby if you want them later. But please, whether in the story or in the Bible, keep reading along with us. And as we read and study and have talked about this, we've noticed some reoccurring themes since we started this journey several weeks ago. One of those reoccurring themes is that God passionately wants a relationship with His creation. He wants a relationship with His people. And He came down every day and took a walk with Adam and Eve originally in the Garden of Eden and it revealed His passion for them. It revealed His desire for personal relationship and friendship and closeness. But Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God and that's what sin is. And their disobedience is what brought into the human race a sin nature. And because God is holy and now we have a nature of sin, that sin and that disobedience has separated man from his creator. It is a a barrier, an obstacle in our relationship. And so God is on this passionate journey to get us back at all cost. And on this journey, he's picked some rather unlikely vessels. One of them was Noah. Yeah, Noah was a righteous man, but God got so frustrated with the way the world had developed after Adam and Eve's sin, it became so evil that he decided just to start all over. He's going to cause a flood and start all over, and he was going to pick the most righteous man. Noah uh, built the boat, got in the boat, the flood's over, he gets off, sacrifices to God, but just a few days after that, we read the story of Noah being drunken in his tent, and there's this sin committed and What the story reveals to us is even the most righteous man left on planet earth wasn't good enough or capable enough to remove the sin barrier. It was a message to us that even a righteous man like Noah blew it. And if man is ever going to be in right relationship with God, it's going to have to be some act of God because it's not something we can do for ourselves. So God decides to build a nation. He says, you know what? I'm going to establish a nation that are going to be my people. And my relationship with this nation is going to reveal how I want to interact with the human race. I tried to do that with Adam and Eve. It didn't work. I'm going to establish a nation and I'm going to reveal myself through that nation. And as I show my love and grace to that nation, they're going to learn me. I'm going to reveal my character. They're going to learn who I am. But I'm also going to be able to use that relationship with that nation to show the world what I'm like and invite the world into relationship with me. And you would think if God was going to found a nation, he would pick a matriarch and patriarch that are able to do that. But he picks an infertile elderly couple to be the founders of this new nation. He sets a pattern when he picks them To always pick the ones that are voted least likely to succeed. It seems to be his trend. And then Joseph. Joseph, his own flesh and blood betrayed him. He's sold into slavery. His boss's wife falsely accuses him. He's thrown into prison and forgotten there for over a decade. Man forgot about Joseph, but God didn't forget about Joseph. God keeps his promise, even through the pit and the slavery and the prison, to always be with Joseph. And in one day's time, after all of these years of things not making sense, God elevates Joseph in one day from a slave to the vice president of the world through his position that Pharaoh gave him in command over Egypt. 
And God uses Joseph from that command to save this nation. Jacob was the, now the, the leader of the nation of God. There were only about 70 people left or 70 people in this small nation. And they're about to be wiped off of the planet because of a famine. And through Joseph's leadership, in the lower story events, what was going on, these confined little life events, it looked like Joseph's just trying to protect his father. But Joseph bringing Jacob in the lower story was God's upper story, sovereign way of protecting the entire nation that he's developing to show the world how much he loves them. And so Joseph brings Jacob, 70 of them, to Egypt. And they begin to live there and they are protected from this famine. You keep seeing this when you read the story. That despite circumstances and storms of life, God keeps using broken, flawed, and messed up people. I want you to listen to me because sometimes we get narrow tunnel vision. He doesn't come to broken, flawed, messed up people to comfort them in their mess and to help them along the way in their misery. Yes, God does that. But He is more than a chaplain that comes into the broken places of your life to help you in the misery. He wants to use all of the things that you're going through to accomplish His purposes. He did the same thing for Joseph and the people of Scripture. He wants to do the same thing in your life today. He wants to use you and Yes, your mess that you thought disqualified you. He wants to use you and your mess to ultimately accomplish His purpose in this world. Listen to me. Your mess is the medium for God's message to get to the world. Your mess is the medium or the delivery system that God wants to use to get His message to the world. He doesn't want to just come and help you through your mess. He wants you to know that your mess is His opportunity to declare Himself to the world around you. God doesn't just bless us that trust in Him for us. He blesses those that trust in Him so they can be a blessing to those around them. He blesses us to bless others. Your mess is the medium for His message to a broken world. He wants them back. He wants to use you and your life and yes, even your mess to show them the way back. You see, the ultimate reality is that all these people that we've been reading about up to this point are pawns on a lower story chessboard that God is arranging to accomplish His upper story purposes. He is building a nation that will eventually give birth to a Savior who would once and for all restore us into an intimacy that was lost in the Garden of Eden. It is all a result of God simply wanting to be with us. The life of Joseph, the life of Noah, the life of Abraham and Sarah, and all of the thousands of people that were interconnected with them were being moved by God in the lower story in order to accomplish the upper story purpose of establishing a nation where a Savior would be born so that we would know him in a personal way this week's unlikely vessel is a man named Moses he's a stuttering criminal with a dysfunctional childhood that runs for his life from his crime of murder and flees to the backside of the desert and he's eventually chosen to lead God's people on a supernatural exodus out of Egypt I mean, we all know Moses, and depending on what generation that you were born in, when you think of Moses, you see different images. If you're one of the older ones among us, you see Charlton Heston with two tablets standing on a mountain, and Moses has a deep voice. 
If you are a younger generation, you see an animated figure from DreamWorks Prince of Egypt, a wiry little guy that winds up becoming this old man. It depends on what generation you're born in, but we all see these images of Moses because he's such a figure in history that we have talked about him. In last week's reading in the latter part of Genesis We read about Joseph sparing the nation, bringing the 70 members of his family. But in the beginning of chapter 4, the story or of the story of this particular book, or in the beginning of the book of Exodus, if you're following along in the Bible, the nation of Israel is still in Egypt, but it's been 400 years that has now gone by since Joseph and his time. And during that 400 years, Israel has gone from Jacob's family of 70 members to now they are a nation of 2 to 3 million people just 400 years later still residing in Egypt. And because of that massive growth, the the, the residents of Egypt and the leadership in Egypt is becoming fearful of the nation of Israel and so they decide to oppress them. Exodus chapter 1 verse number 8 says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Let me pause right there. If you've ever been to Egypt or seen images of some of the great pyramids, a lot of people don't connect what they're seeing there. Many of those things were built by the slave labor of God's people. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and in mortar with all kinds of work in the fields and all of their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The Pharaoh began by forcing the nation into slavery, but in order to stunt the growth of this rapidly expanding nation of slaves, he decided to commit genocide. He gave out an edict that from now on every male Hebrew child that was to be born would be thrown in the Nile River. And through this devastating turn of events, God determines that He is going to reveal three key things. And I believe the things that God reveals in this moment through these devastating events are the same things He wants to reveal in the devastating events of your life. Through this tragic event in Egypt, He decides to reveal His name or His person. He decides to reveal his power, and he decides to reveal his purposes. And I believe when things happen that we don't understand in our life, the devastations, the tragedies, the things that knock the wind out of us in those moments, those messes, they can become the opportunity for God to reveal his name, his person to us and those around us, an opportunity for God to reveal his power through us and through our situation, and ultimately for God to reveal his ultimate purposes in the world. He wants to use your mess, as he did Noah and the nation of Israel, use their mess as a medium to get his message across to the world. Most of us know that Moses was one of those little male Hebrew babies that was born after the edict to kill the male Hebrew babies. But Moses' mother, wanting to save his life, hid him in the bushes along the banks of the Nile River, put his older sister there to watch over him to see what would happen. 
And Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river and sees this baby, takes him as her own and back to the palace in order to live with them. I want you to understand, there is a confined lower story event that seems like it has no significance at all. A girl of royalty goes to the river and finds an abandoned baby, falls in love with it, takes it home. That's a confined lower story moment. But she trains that child in the way of Egypt, educates him. While that lower story seems like some confined, unrelated event, up here in God's upper story, there is a plan. Because Moses was a deliverer that God had chosen to use to set his people free from the bondage of Egypt. And I don't know why he didn't lay his hand on a man and make it happen quick, but he didn't. He seems to do this again and again throughout the Bible, whether it's Moses or Samuel or Jesus. He puts a deliverer in the womb of a woman and then raises that deliverer and forms that deliverer so that before the problem ever reaches its pinnacle, the deliverer is ready to meet the problem. So Moses comes along. It's a lower story event that doesn't have a lot of significance. But what happens is God is in the, in the upper story. He is arranging through Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh and Egypt to ultimately train and equip and empower this man who will be used for his ultimate purposes. You need to understand the lower story events that are going on in your life are not some small, confined, insignificant events that just go on throughout your day. You just think it's all happenstance and coincidence and all these things are just happening and and don't realize that while we're living our life on this plane that God is arranging and managing and using even the heartache in our life to bring about His ultimate purpose for His glory in our lives. Moses grows up. One day he sees an Egyptian man that is mistreating a Hebrew slave. He knows that's his roots. He gets angry. He goes over there and begins to argue with the Egyptian, gets in a scuffle with the man, carries things too far and winds up killing the Egyptian. Somebody witnesses the murder. Moses knows he's going to be held accountable and he flees for his life and he lives for decades running for his life. He winds up on the backside of the desert in Midian under a man named Jethro. He marries Jethro's daughter and becomes a shepherd underneath Jethro. And it was in the context of this remote place in the desert as a shepherd tending sheep that the burning bush experience happens and God begins to speak to Moses what God had planned all along in these lower story events have happened Moses didn't really know what was going on and now God speaks to him in this supernatural experience and says Moses I want you to go back to Egypt I want you to talk to the nation of Israel that are now worse off than they were when you left there four decades ago and I want you to speak to Pharaoh and tell him let God's people go and Moses begins to tell God all the reasons why that's not a good idea I I stutter God I have a speech impediment If I didn't have a stuttering and speech impediment, I wouldn't know what to say. And even if I knew what to say, who do I tell them even sent me? I mean, what are they going to, they're going to believe I had a conversation with a burning bush out in the middle of the desert and he's just going to agree and let everybody go? Exodus 4.13, Moses said, pardon your servant. Lord, please send someone else. Uh, You ever had that conversation with God? When you feel that nudging to do something that's out of your comfort zone, you feel underqualified or disqualified, but precisely the kind of people that God decides to use are the underqualified or disqualified by other people's standard. And it was in this conversation with God and Moses in this moment that God chooses to reveal His name, His person. Exodus 3.13, 
It says this, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. Tell them, I am has sent you. I am in the Hebrew is where we get the word Yahweh or the transliteration of that, Jehovah. He is known by a lot of other names in the Old Testament, but here God reveals Himself as Yahweh. And the term Yahweh or Jehovah implies self-existent one who always was, who is, and who will always be the faithful and dependent God, the I Am. He says, Moses, I want you to go back to the Israelites and I want you to say to Pharaoh and I want you to tell all of the Egyptians what is about to happen in Egypt by my command and through the works of my hands is all sponsored by Yahweh. It's all sponsored by Jehovah, all sponsored by I am, which means the self-existent one who always was, who is, and who will always be. The name of God has always been known through experience. And through this tragic situation in Israel's history and in Moses' life, God chooses to use that situation to reveal His name as the all-sufficient one who was, who is, and will be forever faithful and dependable. And I don't know what your situation is today, but I can tell you there is the God in heaven that wants to reveal different aspects of His name and His nature in your situation. If you are ailing and infirmed and sick, there is a God in heaven who reveals Himself as Jehovah Rapha and he wants to show you that he is the healer today if you are in financial need of provision there is a God in heaven who wants to show himself to you as Jehovah Jireh he reveals himself to you as the provider if your life is a wreck and there is no peace and there is no rest one of his names is Jehovah Shalom and he wants to reveal himself to you as the God of all peace and the God of all comfort his names are revealed in experience And in this experience, he said to Moses, just tell them I am the all-sufficient God has sent you. The next thing that God decides to do is to reveal his power. And he's going to reveal that he is the one true God by a display of his power through the unleashing of the famous ten plagues. So Moses does what God says. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And because Pharaoh continues to refuse, God gets in this cosmic duel between all of the gods of Egypt. Now you have to remember, there were no atheists in Egypt at this time. There were a multiplicity of gods, so the decision was not, are you going to believe in God or not? It's a decision of which God are you going to believe in? And you understanding that context, God is using this opportunity in Egypt to set himself apart from the idols and the gods of the nation of Egypt. Yahweh is going to set himself apart in this moment. So in Exodus 7 through 13, the first plague is the river that was turned into blood, the Nile. The second plague is this uh, plague of frogs. And then the third plague is gnats. And the fourth plague is flies. The fifth is the livestock are all diseased. And sixth, the boils. The seventh plague of storms, both thunderstorms and hailstorms. The eighth plague is the plague of locusts. The ninth plague is darkness. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a period of time with total darkness. The tenth plague really needs a little more time because 
it not only reveals God's power, but it hints to His ultimate plan. Remember, I told you in the beginning when we started studying this that every week there was going to be a clue, probably uh, in most weeks, a clue that would hint to God's ultimate purpose. It would be like a foreshadowing of what God ultimately wanted to accomplish. Well, the tenth plague in this week's lesson is the foreshadowing of what God is ultimately wanting to accomplish. This is the clue. Right before the unleashing of the tenth plague, God says to Moses in Exodus eleven nine. The Lord has said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. I've talked to a lot of people through the years that have a problem with that statement, that God is the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart. They don't understand that. People who have a self-centered view of life, who are individualistic and celebrate the individual and want their own autonomy, uh, people that have a humanistic view of life cannot stand, they love to hate the concept that God would actually harden Pharaoh's heart to accomplish God's ultimate purpose. That just seems controlling to them. But for those of us that trust in God, that understand His character, His righteousness, that He cannot sin, He cannot lie, He cannot go back on His word, that He is a promise-keeping God, those of us that understand that and we trust that, the fact that God is ultimately in control of the affairs of men and that He would move the affairs of men around like pawns on a chessboard to accomplish His ultimate purpose is a comfort to our lives. I'm not fretting about what's going to happen with nuclear weapons in Iran or North Korea. Yes, I want to be engaged. I want to be knowledgeable. I want to respond to those kinds of things. Those things are important in my world. But there are some people that are distraught about what's going to happen with the value of the dollar and the value of gold and what's happening with oil. And the world is in just a a catastrophic situation. And we are on the verge of a lot of uneasiness in our culture. But I lay my head on my pillow at night and I sleep well because I realize the leaders of those nations are not a control of my destiny. The leaders of those nations are not in control of what's going to happen in those worlds. They are no different than the Pharaoh who ruled the world at that time who was used as a pawn on the chessboard to accomplish God's ultimate purpose. They may not even confess His name, but He will move them as necessary so that His ultimate goals are accomplished in this world. I find that comforting. To the individualistic, autonomous person that wants to be in control of their own lives, he gives them the space for them to try. And it leads to destruction. But for those of us that trust him, his sovereign control that is a control of grace and love and mercy is a comfort to us because ultimately he can take every unfair, unjust, heartache, and hurt and use it for his glory he always has he always will and he will use my mess not just comfort me in it he does that but he says it's bigger than that I want to take the mess and use it as a medium so that the world understands my message the tenth plague is called the plague of the firstborn God declared that he would pass over Egypt in the night he would bring judgment in the night And the firstborn of every home would die, except for those that obeyed and heeded and listened. And he told them, for those that were listening, he said, I I want you to take a lamb and I want you to prepare it as a meal. 
And in the process of preparing this lamb as a meal, I want you to apply some of the blood of that lamb to the doorpost of your home. So that when the death angel passes over Egypt in the night and he sees the blood that has been applied to the doorpost of your home, it will be a mark that you belong to me. It will be a mark of your obedience. It will be a mark of your surrender to my lordship in your life. And and as he passes over, you will live. And it happened just exactly as God said. And the unprepared households in the nation of Egypt were full of such sorrow because so many of the firstborn had died that Pharaoh calls Moses in and he demands that he lead, that get these people out of here. Your God has brought judgment upon us. Get them out of here. And he begs Moses to leave as fast as he can. And then later he's angry because he lets them go and he pursues them to hunt them. And they are trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And through a miracle again, God supernaturally parts the Red Sea. The nation of Israel walks through on dry ground. And the sea then closes back upon the pursuing Egyptian army. It reminds me of a a little boy who got in his car one day after children's church. And his mom said, hey baby, what did you learn today in children's church? He said, mom, we learned about Moses. She said, really? What about Moses? He said, well... Moses was, was kind of like a CIA agent and God sent him behind the secret, um, on a secret mission behind enemy lines and there were these POWs, the prisoners of war and they were stuck there and God sends Moses into this superpower nation to free the POWs and they get out and they march across and they come to the Red Sea and they can't get across so they build this pontoon bridge and they all walk across this pontoon bridge. When they get to the other side, Moses phones in air strikes and the missiles come and the fighter jets and the helicopters come and boom it blows up the pontoon bridge and all the bad guys are destroyed and all the good guys are saved and she said is that what they really told you about Moses he said no but if I told you the truth you wouldn't believe it Because the power of God is at such a display in these moments. He's revealing His name through this mess. He's revealing His power through this mess. And it's so massive. The truth is even hard to believe. When they created the Prince of Egypt movie, the DreamWorks movie, um, they, uh, the, the, the producers brought a bunch of pastors in to try to capture the heart of the story and tell it and one of the pastors said in a meeting I heard uh, not long ago he said I asked one of the animators why did you choose to animate this movie instead of make it a newer version of a Charlton Heston type Ten Commandments and he said Walt Disney taught us that when something is so unbelievable that it's hard to do in real life you know as hard as they worked at Charlton Heston's day it just didn't capture the full deal they couldn't he said if you can't capture what really happened by using real life actors then that's when you move to animation and you tell the magical and the powerful and the supernatural through animation and that's why we felt this is a story for animation because the truth is so powerful but not only is it a display of the power of God more than anything the 10th plague was a display of the ultimate plan of God But to understand the plan in this moment, you have to understand the problem. And the problem is the one we started talking about in the beginning. There is a sin nature in us since the time of Adam and Eve. It is the one obstacle that separates us from God. It's the one problem that He is passionate from that moment in the beginning until now about solving. Because He has got to deal with the sin problem in me and in you before He can ever be in relationship. And His number one priority is to get us back. 
And so he says, slaughter a lamb for the meal and apply the doorpost of your home with the blood of the lamb. It is the clue that one day a lamb would shed his blood on a cross and that we would have the opportunity, like Israel in Egypt, to apply the blood to the doorpost of our lives to mark us as one of His. And through the application of the blood of the Lamb to the doorpost of our lives, we would be invited. It would be the covering, the cure for the sin nature in our life. And we would be invited back into relationship with God. The story of the Bible is all about God's relentless pursuit to remove the sin nature from us so that we can know Him in a very close and personal way. He wants to walk with us like He did Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm going to ask Pastor Bear if he'll come and, and prepare our hearts with music. And I want, to, I want to challenge you today. There are believers in this room who are really having a difficult time trying to figure out what God's up to. Because whatever's going on in your life is not fair, it's not right, and it's not even fruitful at this moment. And you've been waiting so long on a miracle, you've questioned God, you've doubted God, you've prayed, but you don't know how to pray anymore. And you're, you're getting bitter, uh, it's becoming tough. What I want you to do is I want you to have a paradigm shift today and understand that God wants to use your mess as a medium to get his message across. Now I realize I want you to keep believing for the miracle. I want you to keep praying for the miracle because sooner or later the Red Sea is going to part and you're going to know and you're going to see the full display of his power. But in the meantime, what you need to know is that while you're still in the mess and while you're still in the tragedy, these are not wasted moments. God is not on vacation. He has it checked out. He's still orchestrating the lower story events of your life. These are not confined little events that have no significant connection to the overall plan. These things that are going on in your life that you can't define, that you don't like, that are uncomfortable, are being used by the hand of God. So while you linger in the mess, waiting on the miracle, God is using the mess to get the message across until the miracle comes. And when you understand your mess like that, you can hang on in faith. It's when you feel like it's pointless. You don't have to understand it. You you don't have to, to know why. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to know He's in control. And rest in that reality. That while you wait on the miracle, your mess is not a bunch of pointless pain. God is still up to something. And He's going to use your mess to get His message across. Believers, you need need to know that. As Christ followers, we want to pray with you in this moment for you to have the paradigm shift in your faith to see the mess that way. And there are some of us in this room this morning that don't know Jesus. I didn't say you didn't know church or you didn't know religion. There are a lot of people that know church and religion that have never known a personal relationship with Jesus. And today, He wants to mark you. He wants to, uh, He wants you. And it's, He's done the work. He became the Lamb. He shed His blood. But in the same way the nation of Israel had to apply the blood through the doorpost of their home, you have to make a choice. He's done what you couldn't do for yourself. Now you have to make a choice to apply His blood 
to the doorpost of your life so that you can be marked as His. He wants you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to people that are first-time guests today, people that have come, that's you. I'm, I'm putting my... I'm, I'm tapping you on the. I want you. This whole Bible is a story about how bad I want people back. And today is your day. I mean, this is it. I, I've pursued you. I've arranged the lower story events of your life to bring you to this moment so I could accomplish that upper story purpose of finding you again. He's here for that today. And before I invite you to come and pray, I am... Um, I have to tell you this, one of our elders caught me at the end of the first service and said, Pastor, even while worship was going on, and he said, I didn't know whether to come and interrupt you or, or not, but he said, here, here it is for what it's worth. As worship was going on, I felt God put a, a word in my heart for somebody today, and as you preached, it became more apparent that maybe it was right on. And he said, Pastor, you know how when you're talking to one of your kids and you're telling them something they've heard a thousand times and they're nodding and saying yes, but you know they're not really listening to you. And you reach down and you grab them and turn their face around and say, look at me because this really matters. I'm going to say it again because this isn't just the same old stuff to be said. This is the moment you need to listen to me. This is You've heard it all your life, but, but hear me. This is the moment today, right now. It, it, something is shifting in your situation, in your life, in your moment today. There's something different today than all the other times you've ever heard this before. Respond today. And that was his word to us through one of our elders. And I believe, because that's what's been on my heart all week, this is a now moment for somebody. Whether a believer that needs to have a paradigm shift on the mess they're living in or a or somebody that's out of relationship, never known God or wondered, this is a now moment to rediscover or to discover for the first time. He knows you, friend, and He loves you more than anybody else. He knows everything there is to know about you. And He loves you more than anybody on the planet. And He's inviting you into relationship with Him because He wants you to know everything there is to know about I want us to stand and I want the prayer team to come if they will and make themselves available. I want to speak a blessing over your life today before we leave. And let me say this. While I speak this blessing for somebody in this room, whether believer, dealing with a mess, that God wants to be a medium for His message while you wait on a miracle. Or whether you are one of those people that need to come into relationship with Jesus. I'm not asking you to join this church or to find some new religion. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a revolution. I'm inviting you into relationship with the God of the story. And as you come today, I want to I pray. And while I pray, the Heavenly Father saying, some of you have heard this all your life. You've heard it again and again. But He's reaching down and He's turning your cheek and say look at me something is different today it's right now there's a moment it's shifting something is different about this moment respond if you need prayer before people begin to exit the building and make the aisles difficult to walk in while I pray this blessing would you even begin to come while I pray and let one of these people know I'm a believer that needs a paradigm shift in the way I look at my mess 
I just need to know Jesus. I need, I want a relationship with God. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you turn your face their direction? Will you walk with them in grace today? Be gracious to them. Let your countenance be turned their direction and look upon them. And today I pray that you will give them peace. Lord, let this be the now moment in somebody's life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to work to keep this very reverent and worshipful. Don't let the flow of traffic or your schedule keep you from your now moment. We love you. God bless you.